and welcome to episode lucky number 13 of Expected Value, where we go inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr of True Media, and today we have our first book club of sorts, or at least our first guest who has just published a book. He is author and football analyst James Tippett, whose new book is titled The Expected Goals Philosophy, A Game-Changing Way of Analyzing Football. You can find it on Amazon, among other places, and there's a link in our show notes. Tippett is English, so he calls the sport football. We here in the U.S., of course, call it soccer, and we will use the terms interchangeably on this podcast since we're all adults and everyone's smart enough to know that we're all talking about the same thing. James' book, as the title suggests, focuses on the statistic expected goals, which in less than a decade has become a standard advanced stat in soccer analytics as well as hockey analytics. If you're not familiar with the stat, I'll read a line from James' book to explain it. He writes... Put simply, expected goals, or XG for short, tells us the quantity and quality of chances that each team creates from a match. In other words, it helps answer the basic question, how good are the shots teams and players are taking or allowing? James and I will get into more detail over the course of our conversation, during which he'll touch on how he learned about expected goals, an overview of how the stat was developed and calculated, using XG both descriptively and predictively, how the stat is used and received in the UK, particularly by media, using XG to compare players and teams across leagues, and the best match he's ever attended, which happened this year, and it's a doozy. If you are deep into soccer analytics, I think you'll find some interesting backstory in James' book and our conversation. For those less familiar with expected goals, this will be a good intro to the stat, and even beyond soccer, a useful look at the general arc of developing and using new information in many different ways, from betting syndicates to clubs to media, all figuring out how to use expected goals. You can follow James on Twitter at James Tippett, T-I-P-P-E-T-T. His book also has an account at XG Philosophy. Now, without further ado, here's the expected value conversation with James Tippett. We are joined now on Expected Value by James Tippett, author of a new book entitled The Expected Goals Philosophy, A Game-Changing Way of Analyzing Football. James, welcome to the show. Before we dive into the nuts and bolts of the book, I'm curious about your soccer background. You are English, as people will soon find out. I assume you grew up playing, following the sport. Not necessarily true, but just give me your background that kind of planted the seeds for writing this book. Yeah, hi. Uh, thank you very much for having me on. Uh, yeah, I grew up playing football. Um, I'm a Brentford fan. Uh, a lot of your listeners might not know who Brentford are. We were a kind of smaller team in the second tier of English football championship. Um, so, yeah, I've been a Brentford fan for about 10 years, um, season ticket holder there. Um, and then, yeah, I guess the background to writing the book really was just um, on my gap year. So back in 2015, I uh, worked as a football analyst for Smart Odds, um, who are a company, a betting consultancy, who essentially yeah, collect data on football, analyze that data and use it to, to win money off the bookmakers um, by placing bets. Um, and yeah, without going into too much detail too early on, yeah, the Smarters are also owned by Brentford, who are the team I support. And Brentford kind of use their data to, to uh, scout players and whatnot. So yeah, that's a bit of my background into, into football. So was your first exposure to this concept of expected goals that came during the time at Smart Odds? Yeah. So, so when, when I started Smart Odds, I really didn't know what I was kind of getting myself in for. I knew my role mm-hmm. would be football analyst, but I didn't know what kind of data I'd be collecting. I kind of assumed it would be, you know, when you normally think about football data, you think about possession or pass accuracy or sh- like shots on target and whatnot. 
Um, but my role wasn't any of that. It was purely to collect expected goals data, which is essentially um, a measure of shot value. So, so the quality of shots being taken as well as the quantity. So that, that was my first exposure to it and how I first got introduced to the concept. So what are you collecting as you're doing that? Like what sort of data points? Obviously, you know, probably who takes the shot or at least where it is. And what else mm-hmm. what sort of details are you looking for as you're gathering that data? Yeah, so expected goals essentially... Um, a way of quantifying the scoring opportunities which take place in a match. So so every shot which happens has an expected goals value, which is essentially the probability of it hitting the back of the net. So for example, a shot from six yards out might be worth 0.95 XG because it's, it's going to be scored 95% of the time based on kind of past shots which happen. So 95% of past shots from that exact location have hit the back of the net, whereas a shot from you know 40 yards out might have a two percent chance of hitting the back of the net, so it has a 0.02 expected goals value. It's, it's quite hard to explain, obviously, but hopefully that mm-hmm. makes a bit of sense in terms of uh, yeah, giving value to shots and giving likelihood chances to to them succeeding. And this is actually this is actually a phenomenon which started in uh, hockey, which is an, obviously American uh, ice hockey mm-hmm. rather. So um, yeah, that's expected goals in, it, in a nutshell. So then a couple of years ago, you wrote a book called The Football Code, which took a broader look, taking a more scientific approach to the game, and it touched on expected goals, among other things. So what made you want to expand on that book with this one and focus in on this single stat? So the first book's a broader look at yeah prediction-making within football. So it looks at how kind of football pundits are kind of flawed in their, in their ways of assessing the game. It looks at how... Um, kind of gamblers make money from predicting football and uh yeah the, the expected goals philosophy came back because i went i then went to university and played football at uni and found myself trying to explain expected goals to to kind of my teammates my, my university friends and uh it's a quite hard concept to explain in a nutshell as i might have just proven <laughs> over mm-hmm. the last few minutes so i thought a kind of single book was needed to to fully explain it and fully kind of bring it into the public domain so yeah that's a bit of background behind the book i think what the the book does well is it's aimed especially at those people who maybe have a vague sense of it or maybe no sense at all, but in explaining it to people who may not have exposure in kind of an analytics community uh, sense. And one thing I think in doing that you explained well was that you talked about how XG basically quantifies the way we talk about matches already. Can you kind of explain that? Yeah, so essentially, like, when you come away from a football match, you, you kind of think, did we deserve to win that? Did we deserve to lose that? Like, what was the result fair? And I think you base that opinion on the scoring opportunities which took place. Um, so, like, oh, we missed a penalty. Like, we should have won. Like, if we'd have scored that that um, shot in the second half, like, we'd have drawn the match. Or, like, for example, um, they got really lucky with their long-distance effort, which deflected mm-hmm. off a defender. Like, that that sort of thing. So, expected goals, essentially, of taking those score. It's a way of taking those scoring opportunities and putting them into data and letting the data reflect whether or not a scoreline was fair. So that, that's kind of uh, how uh, expected goals can help you separate performance yeah. from result, because a result can be riddled with lots and lots of luck, and performance is the kind of pure how well you did when luck is kind of stripped in the equation. Yeah, I think that's important. I mean, I've talked on this podcast before. I used to work at ESPN, and mm. that was where I would have success in communicating stats like XG2 people is you say, look, you heard this coach say after the game that we had better chances and we just didn't convert them. Mm-hmm. Expected the goals is just doing that same thing in numbers. Yeah, no, exactly that. Yeah, I think that's why it's such a powerful thing is because, yes, it's a scientific data point which you can use to analyze performance. But it's also like 
it's so inextricably linked with just general football philosophy like when you come away from a game you think like was that result fair and was that reflective of the score and yeah it, it, that's why also the book's called the expectables philosophy because it is a philosophy through it you can kind of watch the game and, and kind of assess footballing performance so on top of this descriptive element we'll say there's obviously mm-hmm. a forward-looking element to xg since people and companies like smart odds were using the stat to as you mm-hmm. say make a lot of money how does it serve as a predictive stat then yeah, so, so this is where people get a few confused about expected goals. They think because the word expected is in there, they think it's measuring the likelihood of future shots succeeding when actually expected goals is a measure of past performance. So it, it tells you what should have happened, what shouldn't have happened. And that in turn, because you get a better sense of who's who's played the best, gives you a better sense of who's going to play the best, if that makes sense. So if the expected goals data says that, for example, Arsenal... Um, have been really unlucky and they've actually been taking really good shots but just haven't quite been scoring them you can kind of better assess the future performance of that team than somebody who doesn't have that expected goals data so uh, if you can look at for example if you're a better you can look at teams you can look for teams who have been unlucky in their results and the bookmakers might undervalue the chance of them winning the next match because even though they've been performing well they haven't been getting the results and yeah, you can kind of see how that, that can help you uh, make money or, or better predict football. Mm-hmm. What about at a, a player level? How predictive is it there? Or maybe uh, asking it another way, I often get asked, do the best players, are they consistently outperforming their expected goals or mm-hmm. something along those lines? What did your research kind of lead you to in that realm? Uh, yeah, so obviously you can use expected goals to, to analyze team performance in the sense that uh, if you add up all the all the shot probabilities that a team takes in a match you can work out the like total expected goal score line for the match for example if arsenal take five shots worth 0.2 xg you times five by 0.2 you get one you'd expect them to score one goal over the course of the match like obviously they might score five obviously they might score zero but kind of over the long run they expect to score one um, that's kind of how team team performance can be assessed. And then the same thing can be done to players, obviously. So if, if Cristiano Ronaldo takes 10 shots over the course of uh, a few matches, then and they're each worth 0.2, then you could time 0.2 times 10, and that gives you two expected goals. You'd expect him to score two goals from those chances. So mm-hmm. obviously, if, if he's actually scored 10 goals, um, that's an overperformance of eight goals. So you can say, yeah. He's a good finisher, and without without going into too much depth, um, that that's kind of how uh, players can be assessed using XG. And generally, I think you mentioned this in the book, like almost every player zeroes out more or less. You know, you're never going to be yeah. perfectly at zero, but like you said, I liked you know Glenn Murray and Ronaldo. A chance for those two, you wouldn't think would be the same, but it's a lot closer at the very least than people think, right? Yeah, no. So essentially, I, I've kind of just described how football generally perceives. Um, kind of a player xg but yeah if you, if you look at the data very very few players consistently outperform their expected goals totals which kind of leads you to the natural conclusion that yeah that there's not too much difference in finishing ability from ronaldo to murray like ronaldo if you look at his data you'd, you'd probably consider him one of the best finishers in history like, based mm-hmm. on the number of goals he scores but actually he's underperformed his xg in the last four seasons like you know expected the average player to have scored more goals from the shooting positions that he's found himself in if that makes sense mm-hmm. um so whilst the natural conclusion might be maybe there's not too much difference in finishing ability from the best players to the worst players that the difference comes in the fact that Ronaldo's managed to achieve such high xg totals 
from getting himself into those positions in the first place right. that extra yard of pace he has the extra bit of strength or skill has allowed him to get away from defenders or get closer to the goal to get better scoring opportunities i like that delineation i think sometimes mm-hmm. people hear the first part of what you said and they hear you know oh he said ronaldo and murray are the same player I'm like <laughs> yeah not quite what we're saying just saying <laughs> you get to a certain point they're similar but they don't get to that certain point in the same they don't at the same rate basically yeah I should, I should probably say at this point like this is quite deep stuff i feel like we've dived straight in quite deeply like if, yeah. if, if people are listening to this and, and not understanding it i'd go i suggest going and reading some articles and expected goals or or sure. getting a bit of a um getting a bit of uh, an insight into how it works first and then maybe going back and re-watching this or re-listening to this just because yeah, yeah we, we have dived i think straight straight into the deep yep. end of expected goals here <laughs> yeah I, I like to think we have a an audience that is into this sort of thing and can follow it but definitely you know find the articles pick up the book uh if you're trying to to keep up a little bit and you feel like you're falling behind let me ask you have you seen this expected goals philosophy or how have you seen it kind of playing out on the field as the stat and similar numbers have kind of uh, been on the rise of the last decade or so have you have, mm-hmm. what have you seen uh style wise that may have been affected by these numbers or knowing these numbers in terms of style it's very hard to see how a club using this philosophy can translate it into performance on the pitch. Um, uh, what, what, what I think the expected goals method is mainly used for nowadays is scouting. Um, mm-hmm. And that kind of came to be, I think it was first, who, I mean, obviously there's so much secrecy which surrounds like how football clubs use their scouting systems. And, yeah. and I'm not even going to pretend to know how like most of the clubs do that because obviously they have their own secret methods, which they don't, don't kind of share. But um, yeah, expected goals essentially if gamblers can use it to better assess team performance then scouts can definitely use it to better assess you know both team and player performance and those things are obviously interlinked like if you if you find a team who's really overperforming performance wise and, and not getting the results then you can definitely uh, if you're a scout go to that team and look for players who you might be able to pick up on the cheap um so for example Brentford did this Brentford being kind of the the forerunners in, in using expected goals in scouting mm-hmm. um and uh, they they essentially used their data back in 2015-2016 to analyze Luton's expected goals data Luton are a very small team or at the time they were they were fifth tier in English football and uh, the scouts expected goals data basically said these guys are massively overperforming. Over they've got the, the forward um, kind of output of expected goals of a championship team. And they kind of looked more deeply into that. And they found a striker called Andre Gray, who was, um, yeah. who was basically, yeah, his, ex, his expected goals output was mad. And so they decided to sign him for, for, for really cheap. They picked up the £500,000. And then a year later, sold him for uh, £12 million. It eventually rose to after after um, all the add-on fees. So, yeah, that's that's kind of an insight into how you could use expected goals to find um, players and, and how you can see that translate into scouting and, and manipulating the transfer market. It was fun reading uh, through the book, as you mentioned, players like Gray that at mm-hmm. the time, you know, were basically nobodies. And I didn't, you know, I didn't know when they, when Brentford acquired him, of course. But then you look at him <laughs> now and you're like, oh, you know these names now. And it's funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't realize, you know, where some of these guys came from in the yeah, fourth tier or whatever it was. Yeah. Uh, but, but they're good examples that, that XG kind of helped pick, pick guys out, even at that low of a level. Yeah. No, definitely. So, so I'd, I'd compare Brentford to um, baseball's uh, Moneyball story with the Oakland days, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, yeah. And yeah, expected goals method is probably comparable to on-base percentage. Is like the statistic which was undervalued by the footballing right. world or baseballing world. Um, and expected goals has basically served as a tool from which to find these undervalued players. And Brentford's whole philosophy is about 
not only finding them and identifying these hidden gems in the transfer market, but then also selling them when they become overvalued and making a massive profit that way. And I think they've turned over like in excess of 100 million pounds, which doesn't sound big in footballing terms, but for a small club like Brentford, oh, yeah. who b- before like 2013 had only ever made like 20 million pound in their entire 100 year history as a football club. Yeah, that's, that's another good point. It's not just about finding undervalued players elsewhere, but also knowing uh, when and how to value your own players and when to maybe get rid of them. What was the what was the reaction to Brentford in England at the time? You know, I picked up on some of it just kind of through analytics community here in the U.S. What was the perception of what Brentford was doing in England then and now, for that matter? Yes, yeah, so I, I think Brentford. Um... In the analytics community, they're a massive name uh, in football mm-hmm. analytics just because they are the kind of poster boys for, for the st- statistical news uh, uh, movement and, and their expected goals analysis especially. Um, they haven't actually, although they have made this um, incredible kind of transfer market success and they have made all this money, they, they've definitely been greeted with a lot of media attention, but they haven't actually, because the English Football League is essentially a lot harder to break out of. Yeah. Um, than, for example, Major League Baseball, I'd say. I'd say uh, Oakland's right. success was more tangible, whereas Brentford haven't actually been promoted yet to the Premier League. And, and even though they are punching well above their financial weight in the second tier, obviously most of football's media's attention is on the Premier League and you know, the, all the, mm-hmm. the big money signings and whatnot. So, um, But yeah, within the analytics community, Brentford are definitely a massive, massive thing and their success has been massively appreciated there. On the kind of recruiting and predictor front, you talk about how teams and people are trying to compare players and teams across the leagues from your experience how do these clubs betting syndicates etc how do they deal with translating xg and other metrics between countries between leagues so yeah this is this is again digging a bit deeper Uh so smart odds um they collect data on a number of uh, european leagues like uh, but pretty much every top european division you could think of from from the premier league in england obviously to to the premier league in azerbaijan um Uh, essentially because teams from different leagues so often play each other in European tournaments at like the Champions League or or um or the UEFA Cup um or yeah even even within countries like you have the tournaments of like the FA Cup or, or the League Cup um right. you can use stats basically to measure uh how well teams from different divisions are playing against each other and use that to cr- generate a kind of league table which incorporates every team that you're collecting data on so Chelsea might be 12th in this league table and then Bayern Munich might be 13th and then Lyon might be 14th and yeah you can mix all these different teams from different nations together and create one massive league table based on expected goals methods yeah that's that's interesting because it always in the US for example Mm -hmm. you wonder from an MLS perspective how are they going to translate? It's you know there's some of the similar things here about Premier League where it's kind of player adaptive physical nature stuff like that. How does MLS relate to you know the league in Chile or Austria or there's just there's so many different uh, the variables that it's always interesting to me to see how teams other companies try to figure things out. It's like a big puzzle, a big problem mm. solving that, that the yeah. numbers help with. We don't I don't think we have a complete picture yet though. No, definitely. It, and, and that's an incredibly hard thing to do. And I think every puzzle is also different. So everyone has that mm-hmm. different interpretation of the puzzle. And there's no kind of one true answer, obviously. But uh, yeah, the, the expected goals is just one of those tools which you can yeah. use to try and form as clear an image as possible, I'd say. What do you think is next? I mean, XG is a great tool. It's also a mm-hmm. great building block. I'm sure you know models are going to continue to get refined. What do you see is next kind of on the analytics front as teams try and get better and better at recruiting at self-scouting etc yeah i think i think that's obviously an incredibly hard thing to foretell i think um 
after obviously main technological advancements who, who knows like what could be next um i think ball tracking could be more of a thing and, and also player mm-hmm. tracking i think football's such mm-hmm. a dynamic sport you've got 22 players all moving about like at different times they're always changing positions and the ball's obviously always changing position i think if there was a way to integrate i don't know like chips into the players boots and into the ball so you yeah. could have data at every second of the match and where everyone was and and at the end of the day football's a game of entirely based around space and and creating space for yourself and limiting the opposition to space and and progressing the ball through stages and yeah taking shots from the best locations possible i think once we get a better way to quantify that space that'll be the next major advancement but then obviously with the advancement of like ai for example artificial intelligence that has massive potential to shape not only you know helping the referee make decisions or or preventing concussions but also analyzing the performance side of the game so using a computer to assess chance creation or, or assess the danger of each attack i think that would be a massive step and specifically the expected goals method and how we use that mm-hmm. to analyze the sport yeah i'm with you on that i'm eager to see just what gets done with the player tracking data i know the nfl here has just started mm-hmm. and we're they have chips in the shoulder pads and such and we're just kind of oh, really? figuring out what to do with that I and mean, the data's been around for a couple of years teams have had it a little longer but yeah it's what do you do with it it's like okay so it's cool that uh you know he attained the highest sprint speed but what does that mean and you know mm. so it's, it's starting with what do we have and then figure out what's next but it's gonna be an interesting thing to track i think over the next yeah two three five ten years etc uh, we always wrap things up here just by kind of running through some of your favorites so mm-hmm. i'm gonna just ask you a handful of quick things so what would you say is your favorite number and why lucky number something along those lines my lucky number uh i don't know 15 maybe when i when i was younger yeah. it was used to be 15 so i was there my birthday what, what would you say yours is <laughs> Uh, minus 21. It was what I wore. Is yeah, similar thing. It was the number I wore playing baseball, playing basketball. You know, for whatever reason, growing up, uh, there okay. were a number of players that like Tim Duncan, is a basketball player, wore 21. Mm-hmm. Uh, Roberto Clemente is going back into the 70s. One of my favorite baseball players. He wore 21. I think there's something pretty about the number too. I don't know. Just uh, yeah. it's, no, it's blackjack. It's uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a multiple of primes. You know, we can get super nerdy on. It's three touchdowns in the NFL, something <laughs> like that. Nice. But, uh, but that's like it that. for me. You mentioned Brentford season ticket holder, so I'm assuming that is the answer to your favorite club. Oh uh, yeah, it's, it's got to be Brentford for me. Yeah. How about, how about yourself? So I I'm from Kansas City, so mm-hmm. I grew up. I was a teenager when Sporting KC came around. So from a soccer standpoint, I'm in on Sporting KC, and they've had a revolution in the last decade or so. As I've gotten a new stadium and rebranded and all that, so mm-hmm. it's a it's a fun time. What would you say? What about uh, favorite stadium? We'll throw Brentford out of the equation for this. Is yeah. there a stadium that you would point to that, say I'm coming over to London or England and mm-hmm. I want to go to a game, what would you say, like, you got to go here to see a match? I probably wouldn't say any of the bigger stadiums in terms of, like, obviously there's Wembley, Old Trafford, Anfield. Yeah. I, I guess um, I guess if, if you want to go for magnitude, go to one of them. They're obviously the biggest. And, sure. And I, I'd say one of the smaller ones in terms of atmosphere. Or, or, or not necessarily smaller, maybe the older ones. I feel like where you get really close to the pitch, it's all really tight. Like somewhere like Villa Park, which is the home of Aston Villa. Yep. Um, that's probably the best atmosphere I've had. And it's, it's like a really historic stadium. And yeah, I'm a bit of a stadium nerd when it comes to like history and kind of the nice. culture behind it and whatnot. So yeah, somewhere like Villa Park, I'd say. I went to my first Premier League game last season, or earlier this year, I guess, at Craven Cottage, mm-hmm. which was... Oh uh, yeah, it's a lovely cool. stadium. I, for a lot of the reasons you say, you know, it's it's fun that you're literally like walking through a park to get there. Uh, just the way, you know, you've got four stands that are all a little bit, that are all separate. You know, the lack of 
from an American perspective, like the lack of, we'll just say, like in-game entertainment is mm-hmm. different. There's aren't a lot of big screens. There aren't breaks for mascots and cheerleaders to throw things into the crowd. Or, uh, <laughs> but uh, like you said, it felt like a throwback in, in all the best ways. Yeah, it's a really nice stadium, that right on the river as well. Yep. The one thing they've got um, that kind of ruins that is they've just introduced those clappers. I don't know if you've seen them, but it's kind of like every fan gets like a clap, a kind of like clap, uh, paper clapper thing, which yep. just, yeah, I think just like, but it doesn't ruin the atmosphere, but oh, it's just annoying, really. <laughs> it's a, it reminds me of a bit of the Vuvuzela from like 2010 or uh, like the yeah. World Cup. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, that good was stadium. South Africa for the Vuvuzela experience. That was something. Oh, wow. <laughs> poor you. My ears just stopped buzzing a few weeks ago. <laughs> and, nice. and finally, two more for you. Who's your favorite player growing up? My favorite player growing up, obviously being English, I'd probably have to say like Beckham or Lampard, kind of that that kind of sure. era. That was um, that was yeah when I was younger, they were kind of the poster boys of English football. And finally, favorite match that you've been to? It doesn't even have to be soccer or sporting event, game, whatever. Favorite uh, match that you've been to? It was actually quite recently, actually. Um, I'd say, uh, do you guys know much about cricket? It's like basically English a little, a little baseball. Bit. Yeah, yeah, our English, company. English, we work on the cricket front a little bit, and mm-hmm. I have a general familiarity from uh, that and some other friends who know the sport. Yeah. No, cricket's very data-driven as well, obviously. Like, you can break it down so easily into yeah. definable actions and whatnot and analyze that. Um, but, yeah, Eng- England won the Cricket World Cup. I don't know if you saw this. Um, uh-huh. Back in, like, July. Uh, in yeah. The most incredible that, circumstances, yeah. And ending was nuts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Honestly, like... I guess it's the equivalent of, I don't know, the, the ninth. Is it the bottom of the ninth? Is yeah. It the, yeah, yeah, yeah literally, but, I don't know. Or even beyond shot. that, extra yeah. innings and yeah, walk-off home run in baseball, something like that. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe like rounding all four bases and then ju- like the ball being thrown into the, to the keeper or whatever it's yeah. called and ju- yep. just make it in by like an inch, I would say. It's probably the equivalent of that. Yeah, that was that was insane. That was I yeah. mean, even from far and not totally knowing what was going on, but knowing enough <laughs> yeah. drama, the math of it all, that, that was crazy. I think people, even people in the stadium didn't really know what was going on because it was, um, yeah. oh, yeah, it was just incredible. And it's not a normal thing. Like, they don't go to, the, uh, what, a super over. The super and, over, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's yeah, crazy. All right. So that'll wrap things up for us here. James Tippett, author of The Expected Goals Philosophy. Thanks for joining us here on Expected Value. Cool. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. Thank you. Back in the True Media Network studios, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks again to James Tippett for joining us on Expected Value. You can follow him on Twitter at James Tippett, T-I-P-P-E-T-T. And the name of his book is The Expected Goals Philosophy, A Game-Changing Way of Analyzing Football. You can find it on Amazon, among other places. Now, I read the book before I talked to James. It's an easy read, about 200 pages. As someone who's deeper into expected goals and the soccer analytics world, I think I most enjoyed the historical stories about how betting syndicates and scouts have used XG over the last few years. If you are looking for an initial text on expected goals or to get deeper than cursory knowledge of the stat, I I do recommend this book as a good starting point. Now, I could spend hours, and I have, talking about expected goals, how to use the stat in media for teams. It's not a perfect stat, of course. It does have a lot of value in both evaluating what has happened and what's likely to happen in the future. One thing I do want to point out, we sort of touched on it, is how the game of soccer has changed subtly in the last decade or so. Whether this happened because of expected goals or simply in conjunction with the stats rise in prevalence, it's it's really tough to say. But teams are definitely taking better shots now than 10 years ago. For example, we look at Opta data from the 08-09 Premier League season, 53% of shots were taken from inside the 18-yard box. 
Now, this season, 11 years later, 63% of all shots have come from inside the box, so up by 10 percentage points. And we can use that distance as a basic proxy for shot quality, and teams seem to intentionally be looking for better shots and settling less for the long-range flyers. And I'm not saying this is necessarily because of expected goals, but it certainly can't hurt to be able to measure shot quality in better ways, in turn making the value of good shots even more clear. And this is true not just in the Premier League, but look at the Bundesliga, MLS. Around the world, all the leagues that I've looked at, the numbers tend to be trending toward taking more shots from inside the box and basically more better shots. That'll do it for episode 13 of Expected Value. Thanks again to James Tippett for joining us on the show. Please continue to spread the word about the podcast and please subscribe, rate, and review it wherever you listen. Hit us up on Twitter at True Media Sports. We even have a fancy new company logo you can check out. And you can find me on Twitter at Paul Carr. On behalf of everyone at True Media, thanks for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. 